There we go. How is it possible that that handsome little fella up there ended up being 50 years old? I ask myself that question on a regular basis. There I was sitting, not a care in the world, and fast forward about 48, 48 and a half years later, and here I am this morning. Now, I can't actually remember back as far as when that picture was taken, but I can remember certainly the last 40, 45 years of my 50 years, and in some ways, it seems like those years have just flown by, whereas in other ways, it seems like they've kind of gone on forever, and there's loads of stuff that's happened during those 40 years. I can't actually believe I'm 50. In my head, I still think I'm about 25, and it's scary just how quickly time has flown by and just how, qu how quickly and how fast time does go by. In other ways, if I stop and I think about what has actually happened during that time, so much has taken place. I've lived in uh, eight different homes in places such as London, Hampshire, Wallsend, Motherwell, Hereford, and now Newcastle, or Kingston Park in Newcastle. And one of the biggest things to happen to me was obviously marrying Claire 27 years ago. It's, it's 27, isn't it? Yeah, 27 years. 28 years this... No, 27 years this summer. Sorry, 26 and a half. That's me in trouble. 26 and a half years ago. I was going to say it seems like 27, but that sounds even worse. <laughs> now, the depressing thing is that Claire doesn't look any different today than she did 27 years ago. But sadly, I haven't weathered just quite as well as Claire has. <laughs> That's a shocking example of decline. I mean, the, the young one wasn't great to start with, but that is awful, isn't it? Sadly, I haven't weathered quite as well as Claire has. How can I go from, from that to that in the space of 27 years? It's appalling, isn't it? 27 years later, we've got two adult children who are both working and uh, at, at university. We've had different jobs, we've done all kinds of different things. When I was born in 1972, three out of my four grandparents were alive, and one of my great-grandparents was alive. Now they are all dead. Um, and my own parents are now great-grandparents even, which is amazing. And I'm hoping that my turn to be a grandparent isn't just for a little while yet. A little way off, hopefully. 40 years or so has gone, in some ways, in a, just a flash, just like that. And those of you who are, who are the age that I am or above will kind of identify with just how quickly time goes by. And yet, in other ways, when we look back over those years, so much has happened. We've done loads of things. We've been to all sorts of places and done all kind of different experiences and, and, and things in life. So in some ways, the time has gone so quickly. In other ways, uh, so much has happened in that time. Now, God rescued the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt in about 1444 B.C. And they then spent 40 years living in the desert, in the wilderness, in between Egypt and what is now the land, the modern-day uh, land of Israel. And they lived to the south of what is the modern-day land of Israel for about 40 years. They should have gone straight into the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them, the promised land, probably within a, just over a year or so of having left Egypt. They should have been in, it should have been theirs, and they should have been living there. But they rebelled against God, and, and Paul talked us through this the other week. They rebelled against God because they were scared, basically. They thought it was too big a deal. They just couldn't do it. They didn't trust God enough. And because of that, they then spent 40 years in the desert, or about another 39 years uh, on top of the one they'd already spent. And although they did move around a little bit, particularly in the second year, for most of that 40 years, they were just in one place or in just one or two places. They didn't kind of wander around all those 40 years. Most of it was just spent in one place. Two and a half million people living in a gigantic, enormous camp, 
with a tabernacle, the portable temple where they worship God, right at the center of that massive big camp. And the Bible tells us a lot about what happened in the first two years, and also the very last year, which is what we're going to look at this morning. But it tells us almost nothing about what happened in between. Presumably that's because not a great deal did that's of any significance to us today. They just lived in this massive big camp. Children were born, people got older, kids grew up, people got married, people died. Guys like me got gray and bald and a, a bit fatter. And, and life just went on as it does. It must have been a bit like living in one of those gigantic refugee camps that you see on the news. This is one just outside of Syria. A massive city of tents where it has its own rhythm of life and, and people just create their own kind of life and culture and, and, and kind of life system in a massive tented city. And just like my life, I'm sure that in some ways at times, it, you know, time just flew by. And yet in other ways, it must have really dragged. There wouldn't have been a great deal to do. There weren't any great kind of entertainment. They would have had to make their own entertainment, their own life in that big tented city there in the desert. As I look back on my life, it's difficult for me to imagine spending 40 years in a tented city in the desert. And yet there would have been many 50-year-old men like me in that Israelite camp. And as they look back on their lives, apart from 10 years in Egypt, they would have known nothing else. They would have spent 40 years of their life just living in that tented city in that desert. It would have been all they knew. One of the consequences of disobeying God and refusing to go into the promised land when he told them to, was that everybody over the age of 20 who was alive at that point was then forbidden to go into the promised land. They wouldn't be allowed to go in until they, until the whole generation had died off. God told them that everybody over the age of 20 would die before the people could actually go into the promised land. So by the time we get to the end of the 40 years, there was a whole new generation of people that had been born and had raised in the desert and knew nothing else. The oldest of those who would have been under 20 when the rebellion happened would now, at the end of that 40 years, be around about 60. And there's perhaps just a few hundred or maybe a few thousand people left from the last generation that had been forbidden to go in and who would die in that last year uh, in the desert, in that 40th year. Moses, by this point, was a bit older than me. He was an incredibly old man. He was 119 years old. But it seems that the people were just as much of a problem to him uh, 40 years later as they had been when they first came out of Egypt. We're going to read from Numbers 20, which takes place in the first few months of the 40th year, okay? So we're skipping, we haven't skipped much of the uh, uh, book of Numbers, but Numbers just skips on, and we're right towards the end of this 40 years. So we're going to look at Numbers chapter 20. It takes place in the 39th year, and we're going to read from Numbers 20, verse 1, down to uh, verse 13, and then we're going to skip down to verse 22, and read from 22 to the end of the chapter. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to take it out, to read it, and to follow along. <coughs> There's also an outline on your seat, which has got the various points that we'll be looking at this morning. So this is what it says, Numbers 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. 
The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to the rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of Israel, you will not bring this community into the land I will give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord, and where he showed himself holy among them. And then down to verse 22. The whole Israelite community set out from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. At Mount Hor, near the border of Edom, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will not enter the land I give the Israelites, because, it, because both of you rebelled against my command at the waters of Meribah. Get Aaron and his son Eleazar and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eleazar, for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son, Eleazar. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. And when the whole community learned that Aaron had died, the entire house of Israel mourned for him for 30 days. Verse 1 tells us that in the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. This was the first month of the 40th year, and it starts with the death of Moses' sister, Miriam. And the chapter finishes about five months later, and it finishes with the death of Moses' brother, Aaron. Numbers 33, if we skip several chapters on, Numbers 33, verse 38, writing backwards in time, tells us this, at the Lord's command, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor, where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. And after 38 years of nothing really of great importance taking place, or certainly nothing that the Holy Spirit deemed that we needed to know about that needed to be recorded for us, things really kick off again in the Israelite camp. Just as the previous generation had complained and moaned and rebelled, so does this one. Verse 2 tells us, now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. Water was scarce, and that was obviously a massive problem. Two and a half million people, all the livestock and so on. But instead of going to Moses and asking Moses to then pray to God and to ask God to provide the water, which he would have done, They reacted against Moses. For 39 years, God had provided all their needs with manna from heaven, with the quail, with water, and and so on. And yet now they rebel against Moses. They don't trust God. They reacted against Moses and his brother Aaron. This is what it says. They quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. And they're referring back there to the rebellion way back 39 or so, or 38 or so years earlier. If only we died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates. And there is no water to drink. Just as the previous generation had done, they had a romantic and a a false view of what their life had been like back in Egypt. They were slaves, don't forget. They didn't have pomegranates and figs and all that kind of stuff. They were slaves. And and I think they were also kind of imagining what life would have been like or, or would be like in the future when they finally got into the promised land. 
They would have known that God had stated that everybody over the age of 20 would die. So they knew it wasn't long because most of those had now died. They knew it wouldn't be long before they'd be going into the promised land. It's somewhat ironic, I think, that they complained about the lack of figs and uh, grapevines and pomegranates in the wilderness because all of these had been brought back by the spies that God had sent into the land. And so they'd had all these brought for them. But their parents wouldn't trust God, and they were too scared to go into the land. Verse 3 says they quarreled with Moses. But verse 13 actually tells us that the reality was they were quarreling with God, not really with Moses. This is what it says. These were the waters of Meribah where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord. So they quarreled with Moses, but in reality it was God himself they were really quarreling with. Rebelling against God's anointed leaders was and is the same as rebelling against God himself. And if you look at Psalm 106, you read these words. By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. The people of Israel here basically had a choice whether or not they would demonstrate their faith in God in the midst of a difficult circumstance. They had, after all, got very little or perhaps no water or the last remains of their water. They could have put their faith and their trust in God and asked Moses to pray that God would provide water, which is what he'd done for the last 39 years, that God would provide a new source of water for them, which he would have done. Or they could complain and they could rebel against God and take matters into their own hands, which sadly for them is exactly what they did. The Apostle Paul, writing in the New Testament about the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert, says this, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And then he skips down a few verses and says this, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. So one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit made sure that Moses wrote down all of this uh, in the book of Numbers and particularly this chapter that we're looking at this morning was so that 3,400 years later, we could learn from their behavior. God knew this morning that you would be sat here this morning. Before God even created the earth, God knew that you would be in this room this morning, sat next to whoever you're sat next to. God knew that you'd be here. God knew that we would be reading this passage. God chose by His Holy Spirit to preserve this record partly so that we this morning would look at this and hopefully learn from it. And what we see in this account of the people of Israel is that every challenge in life that we face is an opportunity to demonstrate our faith in God and our trust in Him. Every challenge that we face in life is an opportunity for us to demonstrate our faith and our trust in God. Every challenge we face is an opportunity for us to learn and grow more like Jesus. If we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're meant to be growing more and more like Him each day. And every challenge and every problem we face in life is an opportunity to just that, to grow more and more like Jesus. We can either approach the problems and the challenges that we face in life negatively, like they did, or we can approach them positively. And that doesn't mean that we don't take the the challenges that we face seriously or pretend that they're not a big deal or a problem. Because just like the Israelites had no water, many of the challenges that we face in life, in in our personal lives, economically, or in our jobs, or in families, or in relationships, are often incredibly difficult and are a big deal. But instead of focusing on the problem and complaining and and blaming the government or the authorities or maybe our boss or our employer or our families, our parents, or maybe even God himself, the challenge for us is to see the problems that we face as an opportunity to trust God 
and to grow more like Jesus through the experience. The challenge that as, as we face problems and difficulties in life, which are inevitable, the challenge in those moments is to trust God and to grow more like Jesus in those situations. Instead of saying, why is God letting this happen to me? God wants us to be more like, what is God teaching me through this? What does he want me to learn through this? How can I use this experience to become more like Jesus? I don't know if that's your experience. It certainly isn't mine. My, my kind of default is often to be exactly like the Israelites. But actually, the way God wants us to respond as we're seeking to follow him is to say, rather than kind of reacting badly, reacting negatively to the difficulties that we face, is to say, what is God teaching me? What is God, what does he want me to learn from this? How can I become more like Jesus? God wants you and me to become more and more like Jesus, and sometimes the only way that he can do that is by allowing us to do the equivalent in our lives of running out of water, whatever that might look like for you, running out of water in the desert of life. When we lose loved ones, it teaches us to trust God's wisdom and his sovereignty, and it reminds us that our lives are short and that we need to get busy serving God. When we lose our jobs or the cost of living goes up as it's doing crazily at the moment, it teaches us, instead of to moan and complain and blame all sorts of situations, it teaches us to become more reliant on God to supply our financial needs rather than trusting in our wealth or our own strength and our ability to earn money. Nobody wants to be sinned against, but every sin against us is an opportunity for us to follow the example of Jesus and become more like him in forgiving those who sin against us. When we forgive those who sin against us, we, it's in that moment that we become most like Jesus. When we choose to forgive someone who sinned against us, as awful as that sin might be, it's in that moment that we become most like Jesus. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books, once said this, pain is the megaphone through which God speaks. Pain is the megaphone through which God speaks. And sadly, because we're often so caught up with, our, with ourselves, our own plans, our careers, our ambitions, sometimes the only way that God can get our attention is by allowing us to go through painful experiences, to go through situations that we would choose not to go through, things that we would really rather we didn't have to face or deal with. Because, you see, our character matters more to God than our comfort. Now, the world that we live in tells us it's all about our comfort. It's all about us. The media is bombarding us with images and messages constantly telling us to live for ourselves, put ourselves at the center of our universe, buy everything we need, just surround ourselves with everything that we would want and ever need. It's all about our comfort. That is the world we live in. It's all about you. It's all about me. It's all about our comfort. And God says it's not about our comfort. It's about our character. And God is more interested in your character, in my character, than he is in our comfort. And often it's necessary for God to remove our comfort to refine our character. Sometimes God allows us to do the equivalent of running out of water to enable us to grow to trust him more to deepen our faith in Him when there's no other options, when there's nothing left. You know, when we've got loads of money in the bank, we just kind of go to the money, don't we? We just think, oh, I can do this. When there's no money left, suddenly it becomes a bit harder and we have to trust God. So rather than ranting and, and, and raving about life, the government, our working conditions, our finances, our families, our health, our whatever it might be, God wants us to ask Him, what is He trying to teach us through these situations? And he wants us to use them as opportunities to grow 
and become more like Jesus. We won't grow and develop and become more like Jesus. We won't experience spiritual abundance until we learn to trust God in the equivalent of our wilderness. We won't experience spiritual abundance until we learn to trust God in the equivalent of our wilderness. And as painful as the wilderness experiences often are, they are actually the place where we learn to trust God and we learn to grow and get to that place of spiritual abundance where we become more like Jesus. Verse 6 tells us that Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of the meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. They, they responded the right way to the people's rebellion. They took the situation to God and, the, and God's glory appeared to them. And God spoke to them. This is what he said. Take the staff and you and your brother Aaron go, sorry, gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. All Moses had to do was to stand in front of a rock face. There was presumably some kind of rock or, or mountain or something with a rock face right where they were camped, somewhere close to the camp, and speak to it. Take the people and speak to it. And then God would miraculously provide water to come out, to burst out from inside that rock, and there'd be enough water to feed the two and a half million people and all their livestock. And Moses started out okay. Verse 9 says, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he had commanded him. He's obedient. Moses' staff was the symbol of God's power that Moses carried with him. It was the, the symbol that God used or, or that Moses used to kind of demonstrate God's power. He lifted it up in the air and God divided the waters of the Red Sea 39 years earlier. But having got that staff, then it all went horribly wrong. Moses had finally had enough of leading these ungrateful wretches through 39 years of the desert. This rebellious, ungrateful, faithful mass of people. And Moses snapped. And he blew his top. And this is what it says. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. The water gushed out and there was so much water it formed a lake. They gave it the name the waters of Meribah. But Moses had blown it big time. It's great, the water's there, the provision's there, and if we're tempted, we can just kind of skip over it and think, what's the big deal? But actually, Moses had, had blown it big time. He lost his temper with the, people, uh, with the people, which was totally understandable. I think we all would have done. But then as he lost control of himself, he took the staff, that symbol of God's power, and he struck the rock twice with that staff. And the problem was that God had specifically told him and Aaron to speak to the rock, not to hit it, He'd been specifically told to speak to the rock, and God would cause the water to pour out of the rock, but instead he hit it twice with his staff. Why did he do that? Well, partly, I think, because he'd lost his temper, but more importantly, it seems that Moses didn't believe God. In verse 10, he says, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? For some reason, Moses had stopped trusting God enough to do what God had told him to do. Moses had taken matters into his own hands rather than simply trusting God to do what he'd said he was going to do. In verse 12, God says to Moses and Aaron, you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. You did not trust in me enough. God had told Moses and Aaron to simply stand in front of the rock and to speak to the rock so that the water would come out. And I guess that Moses just perhaps struggled to believe that God would do that or could do that. 
despite knowing all that God had miraculously done for the last 39 years or so, it seems he, he just didn't trust God enough to do this. And so he took matters into his own hands. Apparently, all through the desert area that the Israelites were in, there are rock formations still today that uh, have large amounts of water stored in sort of underground natural reservoirs called aquifers. So it seems that Moses probably knew this, and he thought, maybe if I just hit the rock myself, and he had had experience 39 years earlier of seeing water coming from the rock where God had provided that. So he just thought, well, I just hit the rock myself, and that will provide the water. He didn't trust God enough to do it miraculously. He knew the water was there, so he thought he would do it himself rather than trusting God. It's a tragic example of God telling somebody to do something, but then they either refuse to obey him or perhaps just never quite get around to doing what God has called them to do. I wonder this morning if God has instructed you to do something, but for whatever reason, you've yet to be obedient to him. What has God asked you to do? What is God asking you to do in your life? Will you be obedient to that? I don't know what that will be. It's it's almost certainly not going to be to speak to a rock and see water come out. But it could be something equally as crazy, equally as uh, unhinged from a human perspective, something that is going to take a lot of nerve and strength. It might be something really big like leaving your job and serving God full time, or it might be something small like just having that really important conversation with somebody. Maybe a conversation where you need to repair a relationship and apologize for something, or maybe to forgive somebody, or maybe to share the gospel with that person who you've yet to do that with. The the nature and the apparent size of what God asks us to do is much less important than whether or not we're actually obedient to what he's asking us to do. It's not what he's asking us to do is really the issue. It's are we going to be obedient to that? Sometimes the things that God asks us to do sometimes can seem a bit strange. Speaking to a rock was certainly a little bit out there, wasn't it? And as those as we kind of contemplate doing what we believe God is asking us to do, we sometimes, if you're like me, you sort of think, well, I risk losing face if I get this wrong, if I've misheard from God, or if God doesn't show up and doesn't do what I believe He's calling me to do. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be awkward. I'm going to risk losing face. I'm sure Moses was worried that if he just started speaking to a rock, nothing was going to happen. He would look a real idiot, wouldn't he, in front of all the leaders of the two and a half million people, that assembly of all the leaders there. Nothing happens as he speaks to the rock. I would certainly, I think if I was Moses, probably have done exactly what Moses done, uh, uh, did. And maybe God has been asking you to do something where there's a risk of a failure from a human point of view. Where great faith is needed to step out because you know that it's going to be awkward and embarrassing if God doesn't show up. And even if God does show up, it's going to be awkward and embarrassing and difficult. When we sensed that God was speaking to us as a church about extending the building here, it was really tempting as a, as a team of elders to ignore what God was saying. It was just really tempting. Believe me, as elders, it would be far easier if we just left everything as it was and just ticked over and carried on. The, we, as elders, you might think we love change. We don't. It's far easier just to leave everything as it is. Believe me. But the changes we make are, be- are because we really passionately believe God is calling us to do. And sometimes he, he kind of twists our arms and kind of pushes us right to the edge of having to do things. And it would have been so much easier 10 years or so ago when we started looking at extending this building just to have left it alone 
and not even go there. At that point, we had an average Sunday morning congregation of 80 people. You could fit 140-something in here. We did not need an extension. And some people said that. You don't need an extension. There's only 80 people on a Sunday. But we believed that God was calling us to step out in faith. And so we've had feasibility studies done. We've spent a lot of money. We've had plans drawn up. We've had coal surveys done to make sure there's no tunnels underneath the, the building. We've we spent lots of money. And now we've had all the work done at the front, a hundred and so thousand pounds worth of money. And the builder is ready to start work at the back. And we're in the kind of active final fundraising stage to actually knock that wall out and, and, and build right back and extend the building. And I believe that God has honored our faith as a church in stepping out to do this because our average Sunday congregation is now about 120 to 130 people a week. It wasn't when we started talking about that, but it is now. And if you look around this morning, we need more space. When everybody is in the room, there are no chairs left. The other Sunday, there were eight spare chairs in the room. We need one more family to turn up, and we have to turn people away. There are two chairs left in the back hall. They're all out. We desperately need an extension now. We, We didn't 10 years ago when we first started looking at building an extension. And the easiest thing in the world would have just been to have left things as they were and just tick over, to be content with 80 people and not step out in faith. But that wasn't what we believed God wanted us to do. The actual outcome of being obedient to God is less relevant than the fact that we've been obedient. Sometimes we step out in faith and we never see the results from our actions We make big statements, we make big steps, we're very bold sometimes in our faith, and that's right that we do that. But sometimes God doesn't show up as we believed He's going to. Sometimes we don't see the big results that we love to see. But we should still step out anyway and be bold and be obedient. If we believe God has called us to do something, has asked us to do something, then we need to be bold and be obedient and do what He's called us to do. Being obedient to God and stepping out in faith is risky. It's scary, and and sometimes we might get it wrong. We might think we've heard God ask us to do something, and actually it turns out that He didn't ask us to do that, and perhaps we just misheard God. But I would rather be obedient to what I think God has said, even if I ended up looking stupid, than disobey what He has actually said. I would rather be obedient to something that I misheard than be disobedient to what I definitely have heard. Even if it means we end up looking really stupid, even if it means we end up losing face, if if the reason for that is because we've been faithful to God and we believe we've done what He's called us to do, that is a better place to be in. Moses and Aaron got it wrong. They took matters into their own hands because they just didn't trust God enough. And God's holiness, God's uniqueness, His specialness wasn't honored as a result. If Moses and Aaron had trusted God and had just spoken to the rock, the water would have poured forth as it actually did. And God would have been glorified then and seen for who He was, this amazing, all-powerful, holy God who is unique and awesome in power. But because of their disobedience, because of their lack of faith, God was robbed of the opportunity to display His glory and to display His holiness. And so they had to face the consequences. Moses and Aaron had to live with the consequences of their actions. They didn't trust God, and they were disobedient to what God had called them to do. And so verse 12 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Now, God is gracious. Moses and Aaron had blown it, but they didn't lose their relationship with God. They didn't lose their salvation. They both went to be with God when they died, and we see that in the New Testament. But they did lose out 
on being able to enter the promised land. Later that year, Joshua was appointed as Moses' successor and was appointed to lead the people into the land of Canaan. Whereas Aaron died, he was buried on Mount Hor, and later on in the year, towards the end of this, this final year, Moses died and was buried on Mount Nebo, overlooking the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to go in. God is gracious, but we do have to remember that actions and the failure sometimes to act have consequences. And God doesn't remove the consequences of our sins or the consequences of our failure to act in life in this world. He often is gracious and saves us from them, and of course He saves us eternally from them, but we have to face up to the fact that when we don't do the things we should do and we, and we do things that we shouldn't, actions do have consequences that we have to live with. And if we're disobedient to God and we don't do what we should have done or if we do something we shouldn't have done, we will sometimes have to live with those consequences. It's not that we lose our salvation, but we may have to live with a lack of blessing or put up with the consequences of our disobedience. As we come to a close this morning, I wonder what God is saying to you. What has God been saying to you? Are you experiencing maybe your own equivalent of lack of water in the wilderness, whatever that looks like for you this morning? Will you trust God and grow more like Jesus in and through that experience, or will you complain, moan, quarrel with God, and maybe even rebel against Him? God won't lead us into spiritual abundance until we've learned to trust Him in and through our wilderness experiences. I wonder, is God speaking to you this morning? Has He been speaking to you and gently uh, nudging you and asking you to do something, big or small? Will you be obedient to his voice, even at the risk of looking foolish in front of other people? Let's just take a few moments to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us this morning. Let's just let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and just pause and just take a few moments to think and reflect. And just in the, the sacredness of this moment, just to allow the Holy Spirit to speak directly into our hearts this morning. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us and lead us and guide us as we so often face desert experiences, a lack of water in our own lives, and, and that will manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. Help us to trust you. Help us to see those things as opportunities for growth. Help us to learn. Help us to mold our character so that we are more conformed to the likeness of your Son. Help us to become more like Jesus. Help us not to be like the people of Israel who rebelled and quarreled against the Holy Spirit. Help us to be those who submit to what you're doing in our lives, to your discipline in our lives day by day. Father, I pray for anyone this morning that you've been speaking to, that you've been commanding, and I pray that they would be obedient to your voice. Father, your greatest command is that all men everywhere repent. And I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who's yet to repent, to turn around and give their lives to you. I pray that this morning, this will be the moment when they surrender their lives to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to trust you. Help us to live for you day by day, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Band are going to lead us